This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Knowledge at Wharton on Business Radio. Here's your host, Dan Loney. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Knowledge at Wharton here on Sirius XM 132, business radio powered by the Wharton School. Day two of our special, The Great Recession, what has changed in 10 years. Great having you joining us. 10 years ago, the country and the world went through an incredible, challenging economic time. Millions of people losing their homes. Many more lost significant retirement savings. And these stories still have impact today. The financial crisis is part of American history that many people would like to never have repeated again. But chances are we will see another version of this event at some point in the future. About one in five workers in the U.S. lost their job in the beginning of the Great Recession, and many of them never recovered. Instead, millions of people settled for work below the level that they were qualified for and for far less pay. Many also ended up working as contractors without some of the benefits of a traditional company employee. At the height of the recession, the unemployment rate peaked at 10%. It's now below 4%, but while jobs have recovered, wage growth has been slow. To look deeper at the impact of the Great Recession on the jobs market, we are joined uh, on the phone by Peter Capelli, Wharton Professor of Management, who's also Director of the Center for Human Resources, here in studio with Yvonne Barenke, Associate Professor of Management and Associate Professor of Business Economics and Public Public Policy here at the Wharton School. And joining us uh, on the phone is uh, David uh, Lewin, who is a Professor Emeritus of Management, Human Resources, and Organizational Behavior at the UCLA Anderson School of Management. Yvonne, great seeing you. Thank you for coming on today. It's great to be here. Thank you. Peter, David, great to have you on the phone with us. Thank you both. Thank you. Thank you. So, Peter, we'll start with you. When you think of that jobs loss numbers that I mentioned just a second ago, this was something pretty unique to the American uh, American Business Society, correct? Uh, Well, unique back to the Great Depression. uh, But, you know, to lose this many jobs so fast uh, was certainly something you don't see in other kinds of recessions, but this was not a typical recession. This was a banking uh, crisis. And as we know, those things take a very long time to clear up, and it certainly did here. I think the interesting thing just to remember about this is, the, as you say, the effects linger. But as with a lot of uh, unpleasant events, they hit uh, people differently, and they hit the weakest people the hardest. So people who are just getting into the labor market uh, suffered the most. People who were in jobs that weren't particularly secure also suffered the most. And in terms of the after effects, those people continue to suffer the most. David, your thoughts? Well, uh, I do think the Great Recession uh, should be compared to the Great Depression because they're the two closest uh, events in terms of impact. In addition to what uh, what Peter has mentioned, I would point out that um, the public sector was held by many people, citizens and politicians and others, uh, to be heavily responsible for the Great Recession. And uh, there was much attention, and this is, of course, in addition to the uh, subprime uh, mortgage uh, effects. And uh, this was reflected in the uh, attacks in many states, beginning in uh, uh, Midwestern states, on public employee unions and, in fact, on public employees per se 
And the results of that were to um, cut back on the pay, but especially on the benefits, retirement benefits and health care benefits of public employees uh, now all around the country. And so the idea that uh, the public sector as a whole was a force for good and was highly regarded, I think, was turned upside down, if you like, by the uh, campaign against uh, public employees, including employment, with a growth in contracted jobs to the private sector. And, of course, and continuing until quite recently, the attack on public employee unions. So that is one additional uh, impact uh, that I would point out. Yvonne? Well, um, first of all, I have to apologize because I feel very responsible. Um, I actually moved from England to the U.S. in 2008, so I feel like <laughs> I caused and you triggered. You it with you? Yeah. Yes. Uh, you know, I ne- never had I said so much impact on a whole country with so little action. Um, so, you know, this is, of course, a, a, a seminal event, and uh, it's it's – it's interesting to to think about what caused it, and you know this has been analyzed a lot. Uh, but there's, that, that gives rise to some some issues of uh, what um, computer programmers call hill climbing. You know, you you can perfectly describe one phenomenon, but that doesn't necessarily prepare you for the next. Because what what is what is really re- interesting now, um, not just what caused it, but what happened since. You know, we all know that the stock market uh, is is very very high, so corporations are very rich. But really, what to me is one of the most striking thing, and um, having read broadly in in terms of the literature, what we don't understand is why working conditions, meaning um, you know wages and you know benefit packages, have not really improved. We have um, in economics the you know not many strong in, economics is not a natural science. You know you <laughs> you have to make up rules or laws. But one law that we live by is the so-called Phillips curve. Yeah which says that there's an inverse relationship between the change in unemployment and the change in wages. So when unemployment goes down, uh, wages uh, go up. But that hasn't happened. And people really struggle to understand why. And I think if if we don't understand why this isn't happening in the U.S. now, um, if we don't understand why, we will not understand when it will stop. And um, that leads me kind of to the next issue that perhaps we might not have enough time to find out why, because the the next recession, um, just based on, on average since the Second World War, is must be around the corner. Uh, on average, uh, a recession hit the country every five and a half years since the Second World War, and now we are 10 years in. So I'm not saying we are overdue, but you know, it will happen again to us. And this is a deep, deep, deep question to me of why the wages are so low. And it speaks to resonance with a number of things that Peter as well said and, and the colleague from UCLA. Um, of, because then the, then the next question is, if the next recession comes, uh, uh, who will suffer from it more or right. most? I mean, people are already poor, yet they are working how much worse can that be, um, people might argue, uh, but it will be very devastating to the social strata. And, you know, this is, I think for me, this is kind of the core thing that we need to understand why the working conditions are so poor. And, you know, researchers honestly don't know. Well, uh, Peter, well, I know we've talked with you about this, but let, let's go over this again, because I think it's important. Why do you think that, that the wage growth has been so slow to come? What factors do you think are really playing in here? Just to maybe back up just a little bit, some of the other consequences that happened that affect uh, things going on now, we had a very sharp rise in the disability rate. And so lots and lots of people, frankly, who couldn't get uh, 
jobs and might have worked in a different circumstances, went on Social Security disability. The system was pretty sympathetic to them. Lots of people gave up and gave up on the workforce and went into retirement of some form or another or just withdrew altogether. And I think that explains partly what's going on, what has gone on now. You know, we would see, for example, in a given month that uh, one month in particular this year, earlier this year, we added 300,000 new jobs, which was a lot. I think it was revised down a little bit, but the unemployment rate actually went up. And the reason for that was there were still lots of people sitting on the sidelines who were gradually being pulled back into the labor force. So I think one of the things going on now is still that the job market is not quite as tight as you would have thought given the unemployment rate because, of course, unemployment is just a ratio of people who are looking to the number of people in the labor force. So if you give up looking, you're not counted as unemployed, right? So that's the first thing going on. I think it is true that during the Great Recession, employers understandably Uh, started to change a lot of their practices. So, for example, you didn't have to raise wages because people weren't going to quit. You didn't have to recruit carefully because people are banging on your door all the time just to see if they could get a job. You didn't have to treat people particularly well. So this is one of the first times I've ever seen or heard of where job satisfaction of people who had jobs actually went down. Usually in recessions, if you've got a job, You're pretty happy just to have one and satisfaction goes up. But I think employers, understandably, maybe because of the opportunities and also the pressures on them, started squeezing their regular employees as well. And so we started to see benefits being cut. We started to see more jobs being pushed out to contractors. And, of course, hours of work went up, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, some of this is employers got used to that. And, you know, I think this explains in part why Over the last few years, even when the unemployment rate was pretty high, a lot of employers started to do this complaining that they couldn't hire anybody. And the reason was they thought that people, frankly, would just be lined up on their door if you just said you had a a job. So a lot of that still lingers, I think. David, your thoughts? Well, yeah, I was about to say that uh, in addition to what uh, Iwan said, you do have to also take some account of uh, income inequality and of the shares uh, of of wealth going to capital and labor. And for a long period of time, those shares tended to be relatively stable. But we know uh, that uh, since the Great Recession, the share of of, uh, national income going to capital versus going to labor has shifted rather substantially in favor of capital. And, of course, income inequality continues uh, to become more unequal with the top fifth gaining at the expense of the remaining four-fifths and the top 10% of that one-fifth gaining at the expense of the other 90% and the top 1% of that 10% gaining at the expense of the other 9%. So you have increasing income inequality and you have an increasing share of income going to capital and a decreasing share going to labor. And then uh, on the idea of employment, you can avoid wage costs altogether, benefits altogether, and payroll taxes altogether by going to independent contracting. And I think maybe not enough attention has been paid to how extensive such contracting is. And it's not confined to any industry. The large majority of uh, truck drivers in this country are 
independent contractors. Yep. Yep. And that proportion has increased substantially in the last 10 years since the Great Recession. The vast proportion of insurance agents are independent contractors. The vast proportion of delivery folks and folks who install uh, electronic equipment are independent contractors. Uh, you know, colleges and universities have increased dramatically their use of independent contractors. And in addition to that, there uh, are two other factors I want to I want to mention. One, and of course this is uh, driven in part by the technology and part by uh, companies waking up to discover that they can have loads of customers performing work that was previously performed by paid employees. Well, and David, a lot of those jobs that you just rattled off aren't necessarily what you would call gig economy jobs, but they end up to a degree having the same type of impact, correct? I think that's absolutely correct. I think the gig is something of a gag because these are jobs that used to be uh, regular employee jobs. And, and one final point about this, you'll notice how many companies uh, don't use any longer the word employee. Uh, in a hotel, everybody is all of a sudden an associate. They're not, a ho- they're not an employee. Or in many other businesses, they're a representative or a team member or to use the strain Disney company example, a cast member. This kind of idea that employment and the word employee and even the word labor has gone out of fashion, I think is a real sign of the times, this post-Great Recession era. Ivan? Peter, Peter, a question to you. I think you have looked into some data on these contingency workers uh, and um, because people speak a lot about the gig economy and how it's kind of taking over uh, in <laughs> taking over most of the traditional jobs, but I think you have some, you've you've found some other data. Can you can you talk about that, Peter? Well, Ivan, I think Ivan actually knows the answer to this. And that is, but I, I don't. I forget the source, so this is why I asked you. Yeah, yeah the Bureau of Labor Statistics data uh, shows that actually there's no increase in contracting, which is quite surprising. This is sort yeah. of like the joke about productivity uh, associated with IT that you can see it everywhere except in the data. So I think David's right. You hear, you can take these examples all over the place, but the contingent workers survey published this year shows that the number of contractors, the percentage of contractors has not, uh, has actually not gone up since 2005 and actually by some measures down. Um, and why that is, of course, is a puzzle, right? We don't exactly know uh, what is going on. It's certainly true that lots of jobs have been converted to contracting, but there again, in the data, it doesn't seem to show up. Which is interesting, Peter, because, I mean, I'm sure that there are companies out there, and I can think of one specifically right off the top of my head, that that made the move within the last couple of years to actually take people that were contractors and and either not have the contract continue and bring them on as a full-time employee, or they they did away with the employee that self. So I I don't know if that's a pattern, but as I said, I I can think of at least one company that that has done that in the last year or two. Yeah, all right. It's a puzzle. Dan, if I could just point maybe to a couple of other things I'm sure you want to get in, and that is what's happened to students, uh, people graduating, right? Yeah. They're the most vulnerable just coming into the labor market, and we know from lots of studies, Yvonne will will know these uh, and could maybe speak more to them, that show that the ability to recoup after you start out in a job where you can't 
use your skills or where you can't get a job in the first place. You're sort of passed over for the next round of advancement. And you can see the effects on these folks for decades afterwards. Uh, so it's not just the initial hit, and it's not just the fact that people who are kind of fragile because they're entering the labor market with lots of student loans, which typically don't defer, only a few of them defer until you get a job. And they're having to pay these things off, and they're crushed by the Great Recession. And the crushing doesn't lift. You know, for a lot of these folks, it continues. And that's maybe the worst thing about this. Yeah, But, absolutely. I mean, this is uh, Peter Talks. Uh, about work by Till von Wächter, who, um, who is now at UCLA, actually. And he, he used data from past recessions, and he basically compared as much as possible as you can um, with data. He basically compared people who, are, who look very, very similar to each other in terms of their background, their job experience, and which sector they are working in. But the only difference is that one of them lost their job during the recession and the other did not. And then he used Social Security data and, uh, and, and IRS data to track their income over decades. And yeah. he found that even uh, several decades later, there's a significant difference in their income. So then what does it mean right now? And, and this was just a statistic, uh, the latest statistic uh, announced yesterday, uh, the reporting that the job openings in the United States right now climbed to a record 6.9 million mm -hmm. as mm -hmm. of right now. What does that mean mm -hmm. when you're talking about now, and it's happened now, what, I believe four or five months in a row, that mm -hmm. we have more job openings than actually people, at least we believe, looking for work at this point? And I I think one thing, you know, there's a broader conversation, but I th it, what is certainly true um, is that even if contract work has not actually been that much of a big proportion of the labor force, um, what is certainly true is that the, the kind of the, the implicit contract in the inside organizations has changed. Right. Um, and that, you know, companies just openly do not find it as their core mission to look after their employees as much as they perhaps historically did. One couldn't be cynical how much they did in the past, but they seem to have done that less now. And I think there's a lot of job openings, but these jobs are not particularly desirable. Um, and they're not, not particularly desirable, not necessarily because of what they are doing, but also how they are compensated. Yeah. Um, and they, what, what, what being working poor means, and many listeners may know what it is, but just to be clear, these are people who who think that, well, if I have to work, I need to get a car, I need to find daycare for my kids. Or, and then after all these expenses, I, I actually <laughs> lose money. Yeah. Or I make like $50, and is that worth, worth it? And this comes from the discouragement. So a lot of job openings um, are actually jobs that are not really all that desirable. Mm -hmm. David, your thoughts? I can pick up on that a little bit, and I think Ewan's quite right about that. Isn't it interesting that we tend to know or think we know about the number of job openings But we don't. What we do not know, or know much less well, is what those jobs are paying, what the benefit coverage is, and what the promotional opportunities or career paths are. And as Peter indicated before, there's uh, quite a bit of evidence about the lack of career paths, which used to be part of both implicit and explicit uh, employment contracts that we had in the United States. So the availability of jobs by the numbers of them. I don't think that tells us very much. Peter? Yeah, uh, Dan, I think another interesting part of this, which I, I've started to bump into and some colleagues at Georgetown have written about this, is a lot of these vacancies are what we're now calling phantom jobs. Right. And that is they're not really job openings. Uh, that sometimes what happens is a company posts a job. It costs nothing these days to post a job. It's not like in the old days when these data were generated by the government, you had to pay to put an ad in a newspaper. 
these days you put a pop an ad up on your website, it costs you nothing to keep it up. So sometimes they fill the job and they keep the ad up simply because they're trying to collect resumes. There are recruiters that post fake jobs because they're trying to gather resumes that they can then pitch to other clients. So this seems to be a non-trivial issue. And again, it doesn't mean the labor market's not getting tighter, but it does mean that one of the new developments with this electronic labor market is maybe the data don't mean quite the same yeah. thing as they used to mean. Ivan? Yeah, I, I just want to make one p quick point, and because we're running out of time, you will not contest me. That's wonderful. So, <laughs> um, you know, what we see is when you look at the stock market, the companies are really wealthy or they're valued very, very highly, which is what the <coughs> S&P 500 means, is the what how much markets value these companies. And they're extraordinarily high. So one, in some sense, people might say, well, if the recession comes, you know, we are basically bombarding companies who are doing very, very well. And I, I think this is a very this 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 argument does not hold water and i'll leave it at that <laughs> yeah great having you all with us uh, we certainly uh, will like uh, to try and uh, continue this discussion at another time peter david thank you for your time on the phone today you're welcome thank you thank you yvonne great seeing you again thank you for coming in Well, one of the areas of the U.S. economy hit very hard by the financial crisis in 2008 was the auto industry. Sales of new vehicles dropped significantly because people either didn't have the money to spend or they couldn't get the necessary credit for a car loan. Sales slumped to a low of $13.1 million that year and then $10.4 million in 2009. You also had General Motors and Chrysler filing for bankruptcy only to receive bailouts by the federal government. Bailouts that were very important to President Obama, but by some estimates, never fully repaid. The Treasury said that $79 billion was handed out and $70 billion returned. You also had the element of the government basically owning certain automakers. And then there was Ford, who didn't take any money from the TARP fund, but did from other sources. It's a part of history that the auto industry would probably like to forget, but will never be allowed to set aside. With more on this part of the story of the financial crisis, we're joined here in studio by John Paul McDuffie, management professor here at the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. He's also director of the program on vehicle and mobility innovation here at Wharton and the Mack Institute. And also joining us on the phone, Paul Eisenstein, publisher and editor of the Detroit Bureau, the website that closely follows the auto industry. John Paul, great seeing you again. Thanks for coming in. Glad to be here. Great to have you uh, on the phone with us, Paul. Thank you, sir. Great to be with you. So, Paul, start with you. I mean, seemingly the big question about this part of the story of the financial crisis is whether or not the bailouts actually needed to occur. How, how do you how do you answer that question? I can't even imagine why somebody would ask that question, to be right. very honest with you. Uh, the alternative was the disappearance of two car companies, the, uh, the first and third largest American car company. If you would prefer to have a world in which basically the U.S. market was carved up by Toyota, Nissan, uh, BMW, Mercedes, and what have you, with Ford uh, struggling along, well, that's fine. But I think most people, most economists would have said uh, that losing those two car, car companies would have been a substantial hit and probably driven the country into a depression rather than a recession uh, because a potential spinoff could have been a million jobs. John Paul? Yeah, the... You know, the auto industry has so many multiplier effects. There's so many jobs related to it. And, 
the issue of how important is it for a country to have its own car companies is certainly something that was discussed at the time. There were a few people who said, well, you know, Toyota and Honda already have so many plants here that if GM and Chrysler go out of business, the foreign companies will simply invest and there'll yeah. still be U.S. jobs and that kind of thing. Um, I think, you know, again, with the perhaps bias of a longtime auto industry observer, it would have taken a lot of competition out. It would have taken a lot of uh, national capacity and capability in manufacturing. It would have no doubt hurt the economy in all kinds of ways, if not just because of the profits and other benefits being repatriated to those foreign automakers. And I think as I think back to that time, um, one of the things that I found most compelling as a student of the auto industry was the fact that the supply chain, uh, I thought, was remarkably fragile at that time. And if all the suppliers dependent on GM and Chrysler, GM, Ford and Chrysler, had uh, suddenly had no business from GM and Chrysler, I think they would have gone out of business, and then Toyota and Honda and all the transplants would have been out of luck too. So I think it could have been a sort of domino effect collapse of the domestic industry as opposed to, oh, the foreign makers will simply waltz on and everything will be fine. And, and I think, Paul, when you think locally where you are, the, the obviously the city of Detroit is one that's trying to build itself back up right now. The impact of losing two automakers uh, on the country is one thing. On that region of the country is probably something totally different. Oh, absolutely. I couldn't even imagine what would happen, uh, would have happened to Detroit had we seen those two companies go down. Uh, it would have affected the entire region. And uh, interestingly enough, it more or less overlapped with the beginning of the turnaround of the, the city of Detroit itself. As you know, right now, it's one of the biggest urban stories in the United yep. States, a city that many were ready to let uh, let just fail, let disappear. Uh, you know, the last person out, please shut off the lights, uh, is now having an explosive rebirth. And that seems to be alongside the recovery of the Detroit automakers. What's important, by the way, I should stress here, is that Detroit's revival is not just having the auto companies doing well, but it's also uh, a case of uh, bringing in a lot of new companies, uh, getting diversified beyond the auto industry. Uh, so uh, it had to chart its own course, but it couldn't have done that with an auto industry that essentially saw two of the big three disappear. That being said, though, the the bailout obviously was a, a huge factor for uh, for everybody that was receiving funds one way or another, John Paul. And the idea from, from going back in time and reading about this was initially, okay, part of this is to get you back up on your feet as a company, but also is we want you to invest in that next generation to start that process of, of building out what vehicles are going to be 20, 30 years down the road. Part of that's been done, but I don't know if – if truly the value that the automakers received has really played out into what I think Congress would have really liked to have seen with the auto industry at this point. We're still trying to figure out where we're going on autonomous. Obviously, the technology is building out there, uh, and it's still kind of a work in progress a decade later. Yeah, I, I would agree. I mean, the the I think the 
some of the trends like electric cars have been um, heralded several times as, you know, surging towards a tipping point, And then we've discovered it hasn't been a tipping point. Um, I think that story is so tangled up in the issue of what consumers are willing to spend uh, or their willingness to buy electric cars. That's tied to availability of charging infrastructure and the like. Um, some of the steps forward that we have seen out of Detroit uh, that are pretty impressive, vehicles like the, the Chevy Bolt out of GM, uh, which really is a, a, a cut above uh, pretty much any of the electric vehicles that have come out of companies other than uh, Tesla, we might say. Um, I think, you know, got a jump start from the policy changes from the the other sorts of conditions that accompanied the, the bankruptcy. I mean, you know, there was a piece of it that was getting out of a crisis. There was a piece of it seen as opportunity to nudge these companies towards some new kinds of uh, behavior. I wanted to mention one thing that's related to, to timing. Um, Paul was talking about the recovery of Detroit. You know, many critics of the bailout said, uh, look, the auto companies uh, were badly managed for a long time. GM lost market share for 30 years. These energy crises would happen and there were no fuel-efficient vehicles being made by the big three sort of over and over again. But again, from the perspective of following the industry closely, I would say that by the time of the financial crisis, in terms of manufacturing capability, product development, supply chain management, the U.S. companies were better, stronger, performing at uh, you know pretty close to comparable to any global manufacturer in an awful lot of those areas by then. So Back it up 10 years to the late 90s, back it up another 10 years to the late 80s, the simple competitiveness of the U.S. companies would have looked pretty bad. By mm -hmm. 2008, it was looking pretty good. And so, yeah. again, uh, in the middle of an improvement trajectory to kind of cut it short for, let's face it, the financial crisis cut auto sales worldwide by about 40%, yeah. and they weren't involved in the financial crisis. Yeah. So what business in expensive capital intensive durable goods takes a hit of 40% and isn't in a kind of crisis. Uh, I think it was easy to my mind not to think of this as you're bailing out a company that's uh, uncompetitive and behaving badly and more you're investing in a super important part of this country's manufacturing capability for companies that are already on an impressive improvement trajectory. Paul, I'll let you answer, yeah. answer that. But I also want to touch on, have you touch on also the fact, I mean, we talk about the auto industry and the automakers, but it was also the lenders as well. You know, Ford Credit, GMAC, these are the companies that were the, you know, the ones that were loaning this money to consumers so they could buy vehicles. And obviously the, the change in credit standards and, and the allowing, uh, uh, financing to go out changed and, and obviously hurt the auto industry as well. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Let me let me deal with that in a moment. Uh, I, I agree that the automakers had made major improvements in their business model by 2008, and it was I think frustrating to a lot of folks, feeling like they had hammered out a very different sort of uh, approach to to the car business. They were getting it right yeah. uh, in many ways. But they were saddled with a lot of debt, uh, and they were hammered by a crisis that was not anywhere near of their own makings with an asterisk. I have to say that GM, its captive finance subsidiary, GMAC, also became a player in the, uh, in the mortgage market yeah. and it also 
suffered some intense losses because of that. So GM did have at least a little bit of a role in in the uh, overall downturn, but not nowhere near the big banks of Wall Street. And Ford was even much less of a player. Uh, they needed to get they needed to get a bailout to help them get get uh, rid of a lot of debt. Uh, much of it not of their own making, uh, and, and to compensate for the the crisis that was created by Wall Street, uh, you know, I, I find it fascinating that people were out there screaming about bailouts for Detroit, and yet they seemed to accept as just inevitable that we should be bailing out the banks of Wall Street, and I don't get that at all. I think that was as much political as it was any real sense of understanding of what was going on. Um, and uh, the, the automakers, they certainly needed help with their captive finance. They, uh, the fact is, in this particularly screwy auto industry that we, we have these days, in many cases, automakers and their dealers make more money from financing than they do on the new cars. John Paul? Yeah, I mean, I, reflecting on this, I was uh, thinking of the, you know, the backlash in a way from the financial crisis and the various bailouts uh, has manifested in a lot of political anger that is was directed certainly at first at the at the financial institutions that did contribute a lot to the financial crisis and and took uh, you know little, little penalty. Uh, and um, eventually that led to some backlash against government even providing these bailouts. I just think of all the populism that's been unleashed in this period, uh, much of it focused on the parts of the country that were left behind in boom times, the mm -hmm. loss of manufacturing high-paying jobs in a lot of the you know manufacturing middle of the country belt – and try to imagine how much worse the negative fallout for certain parts of the country would have been if those who said let GM and Chrysler go bankrupt had gotten their way. Um, I think we would have seen even more of a sense of anger and our problems are not being given the – you know, support and the attention they deserve, whereas the, you know, the the coastal elites, the big banks, all of this are getting bailed out much more quickly. So, um, I mean, it was a, a, a rare moment in sort of industrial policy of the last X years of really deciding that manufacturing mattered enough to make this kind of unconventional big yeah. investment. Which is interesting because when you look now several years past, the financial crisis and where manufacturing in general has gone. Obviously, auto is a component of that. We've seen a significant dip, a decline in manufacturing jobs. We're seeing maybe a little bit of a recovery on it, but not even close to where we were 10, 15, 20 years ago with manufacturing. And to a degree, it's the same with the auto industry. We saw jobs come back, but then they have leveled off and and, you know, it's it's an interesting industry to watch right now because of a lot of these factors. Yeah. In terms of the actual manufacturing of the product, some of the same economic forces, globalization forces, have continued to move manufacturing to lower labor cost areas yeah. and, and the like. And we're seeing, you know, some of the complexities of the the global supply chain in all the renegotiation of, renegotiation of NAFTA now. Um 
this is back to a little bit of the the rebirth of Detroit. Um, I know some researchers who've done a careful look at Detroit as a uh, Detroit area, metropolitan area, even including over the border a bit into um, into the parts of Canada that do a lot of auto industry stuff, as a source of patents and other sources of new innovations. Uh, that area now uh, greatly exceeds a lot of other parts of the country, even in other technologies like high tech. And the patents are either within that extended region or they are co-authored patents with other auto hubs in, you know, Stuttgart or in Tokyo Mm -hmm. or in other parts of the world. And so it may be true that Detroit and the U.S. shrunk as a manufacturing base, but as a home for the global auto industry, the Detroit area now has headquarters from pretty much every big automaker and big supplier all over the world. Yep. And there's a tremendous amount of the next phase of technological advance that's being propelled both from there and, of course, from Silicon Valley. Paul? Yeah, it's it's fascinating. When you come here, you'll find that uh, you, first of all, have every automaker from around the world has at least some sort of setup here, even, even some of the... Uh, Chinese companies that, uh, that may never come here yeah. have some form of operation uh, here because of the technology. Uh, there was a, there was a period when all the automakers said how important it was to set up operations in California. So you'll find that most automakers have a design studio somewhere in the L.A. or San Francisco area, and they're likely to have some sort of operation in Silicon Valley for their technology. But it's flipping around. You're now starting to see some some of the Silicon Valley operations uh, partner up with the Detroit manufacturers and others and set up high-tech ventures here in the Detroit area. Uh, you have a lot of uh, a lot of R and D facilities all over the region. Toyota operates some of its biggest R and D facilities. They have a, they have a big proving grounds, including a big test track just outside of Ann Arbor, Michigan. So there's a huge amount of automotive based here in the Detroit area. Uh, what you, oddly enough, don't see as much anymore of here around Detroit is manufacturing. Uh, you've yeah. seen that spread out across the United States, across North America, and, of course, around the world. Uh, but you're seeing a lot more come into the United States. Uh, the number of plants that Toyota operates is, what, now over a dozen assembly plants or major parts like engines. Uh, they're ready to open up a new one in a couple of years. They're going to yeah. be opening a joint venture facility down south uh, with Mazda, for example. So while globalization has hurt the auto industry more generally, let's get away from just the big three, but the auto industry as a whole, yeah. it has helped the U.S. to gain a lot of foreign manufacturing. You're seeing a lot of companies, uh, startups, in many cases funded by the Chinese, setting up operations. Uh, there are going to be probably a number of electric car plants out west right. in not that many years, operated not just by Tesla, but by Biden, uh, by Faraday Future, which seems to be making a comeback after running into financial problems and so on. Uh, Globalization actually can help. Here's here's a little tidbit for you. Uh, who do you think? Let me ask you this, Dan. Yeah. Who do you think is the number one automotive exporter from the United States? I'm talking fully assembled vehicles. I'm going to guess it's probably not one of the big three. 
You're right. How about Toyota? Nope, BMW. BMW. Oh, okay. That was going to be my guess. <laughs> only because and, they uh, make then, their SUV line here, right? And they only here, so right. they have to sell it That's true. through export. That's right. That's right. Right. Yeah, so what happens is with globalization, many automakers, uh, first of all, automakers try to build where they sell when possible. Sure, yeah. There are some exceptions. Uh, in some cases, it makes sense to have regional operations uh, that excuse me, act as world centers uh, for specific products. And that works very well in, in SUVs, for example, and sometimes sports cars and the yeah. like. So uh, BMW ships, for example, the X5 and soon the X7 uh, overseas. Now, here's the great irony. Uh, Donald Trump's trade war with China and possibly with the rest of the world may force BMW to start moving some of the production overseas. Yeah. Uh, Ford, which is, I believe, the number three exporter, will uh, has already cut production of some of the products like the Mustang that it was shipping from the U.S. to China and other parts of the world. So uh, we're already seeing the potential that the Trump trade war may, in fact, hurt the U.S. as an exporter and cut U.S. auto jobs. You're listening to Knowledge at Wharton here on uh, Sirius XM 132, business radio powered by the Wharton School in studio with uh, John Paul McDuffie of the Wharton School and on the phone with Paul Eisenstein of the DetroitBureau.com. So, I mean, let me ask you for a second about about leadership uh, of these companies, because when you think about the leadership that was there during this time, and obviously, as you said, John Paul, they had to deal with a lot of things, not necessarily their own doing, but they obviously had to get their companies, try and get their companies through the through all this trouble. Now you have people like Mari Barra and up until recently Sergio Marchionne running uh, running Chrysler and Fiat. My question is, do you think that that the companies, the automakers today, are more prepared? Because we know at some point there will be another recession. So I guess the question is, do you think the auto industry is more prepared now to deal with the impact of another recession, having gone through such a a tumultuous time a decade ago? Uh, Well, let me start by speaking to the issue of the quality of the leadership, which obviously should have a bearing on that. Um, I do think that looking back, we may feel like this was one of the most positive uh, impacts on both GM and Chrysler. Uh, and of course, we don't have the counterfactual to play if Rick Wagner had been left in place, sure. you know, with the bailout money, w- given some of the good things that were happening. But I have to say that Rick Wagner, as the CEO of GM, who was fired during the bailout, yep. um, in many ways had continued a uh, legacy of GM being heavily focused on market share, pushing production at all costs, even if it went a lot of uh, cars put into rental fleets and the like. Um, Mary Barra is an insider. She was not immediately the new CEO at GM, but she followed two outside CEOs, both from the tech industry. Uh, But she is a tremendously impressive leader who has brought about a lot of, I think, very valuable changes at GM that will help them in a future recession. Uh, She has allowed GM to get smaller. She's had them be more focused on profitability and not just volume. 
some of the product innovation that's happened has been very impressive. And she came up through all those jobs. She was head of worldwide yep. manufacturing, head of worldwide product development, et cetera. And then in Chrysler, it created this opening for Sergio Marchionne, who you know is a, a very singular talent. And uh, if you read the accounts of the auto bailout from um, Steve Ratner and others who were involved on the government side, Steve Ratner is a, a financier, yep. but who was brought in. He says, basically, we were on the fence about whether or not to save Chrysler, and we decided that Sergio was the reason that it was worth it. We were betting on him and his yeah. leadership ability to um, turn it around. And, of course, uh, Fiat Chrysler is not the strongest of all auto companies, but what has been accomplished since then has been um, pretty remarkable. And I think a lot of people figured Chrysler would be long gone by now, yeah. so that would have been a wasted investment. So. The upgrading of the quality of the leadership, the shock to those organizations that they had to change some of the things that had just continued for a very long time, uh, I think will, uh, will it, with the, uh, the benefit of the hindsight of history, look uh, pretty positive. Paul? Yeah, it's, it, it's interesting when you look back at how dramatic the changes were. Now, going into the recession, Ford it either was incredibly prescient or incredibly lucky. Yeah. Probably a bit of both. It lined up a lot of money before. It lined up huge credit lines just before the the recession. Really, here, a depression hit. And that carried it through. It was able to get through without having to go through the bankruptcy process. And by the way, one of the reasons it didn't want to go through the bankruptcy process, and it was willing to keep some of the debt on its books that it could have otherwise wiped out, was because it almost certainly would have emerged as a very different company with the Ford family no longer having yeah. a controlling stake. And that was something the Fords did not want to deal with. And I'll get back to Ford in a moment because that's a that's an interesting issue about leadership. Uh, yes, Mr. Marchione was the reason that Chrysler was bailed out. Uh, President Obama himself said that he was reluctant to give it the bailout it needed to survive unless it had a white knight. Along came Fiat. And uh, Mr. Marchione was far from done by the time he passed away, what, just two months ago. Uh, so we still have a lot of questions about what will happen to FCA long term. Uh, they're downplaying, oddly enough, they're downplaying the two companies that give the company its name. Uh, the two brands, Fiat and Chrysler, are all but disappearing. So that is still a very, very serious company in transition. And we will have to see what the new CEO, uh, Michael Manley, who's headed the very successful Jeep division, will yeah. be able to do as a successor to Marchione. GM Mary Barra is a change agent who grew up inside. And that's so unusual because GM seemed to develop me too type of leaders that just didn't make many changes. Yeah. Uh, she has done some dramatic things. Uh, this was the world's largest car company, and she has not just been willing to accept the position as number two or three, but she has walked out of key markets. She sold off GM's European operations, yeah. closed their retail market in India and Russia and South Africa and so on. Uh, so she is very willing to do things that mean a smaller company, but a more profitable one. As to getting back to Ford, uh, you had uh, Alan Mulally, the Boeing 
executive come in and shake up the very foundation of a corporate culture that was totally dysfunctional. Yeah. Unfortunately, his chosen successor, uh, Mark Fields, did not seem to just make it work. And he was replaced, as you know, in May of last year. The question is what's going to happen with Jim Hackett, the former football player, uh, come uh, CEO of Steelcase, the furniture company. Uh, his early tenure is not going very well right now. It's very controversial. The stock is approaching a six-year low, and a lot of people are wondering whether yeah. he is going to be able to position the company to, to succeed. It's uncertain if they're not going to need another shakeup there. Great having you both with us to look back at uh, the auto industry during this uh, period of time and, and to look ahead as well. Uh, Paul, thanks very much for joining us from Detroit. Hey, it's great to be with you. Thank you, sir. John Paul, as always, great seeing you. Thank you for coming in. Good to be here. Wall Street has taken quite a ride over the last decade. It lost almost half of its value during the Great Recession, and by some estimates, over $2 trillion in retirement savings was lost by the end of 2008 alone. The recovery has opened the markets to incredible growth, including the Dow Jones Industrial Average crossing the 26,000 plateau recently, NASDAQ breaking the 8,000-point threshold, and the S&P 500 finishing at just under 2,900 last month. But stories seem to come out almost weekly saying that investing in the stock market can still be dangerous and we should expect to see a significant correction in the not-too-distant future. Jeremy Siegel joins me in studio, professor of finance here at the Wharton School. You also hear him as host of Behind the Markets every Friday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time right here on Sirius XM 132. And joining us on the phone is Gad Allen, who is a professor of operations, information, and decisions, as also director of the management and technology program here at the Wharton School. Jeremy, great seeing you. Thank you for your time today. Happy to be here. Thank you, Gad. Great to have you with us today. Happy to be here as well. So, 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 Jeremy, take us back to that time, and, and obviously there were certain elements that, that played into the sharp decline, but let's even talk about pre-collapse of, yeah. of the markets at that time. Up at mid-14,000s for the Dow uh, Industrial Average, what was the state uh, of the markets at that point, and were you starting to think at that point that maybe we were going to see a pullback? Mm-hmm. Well, I do remember it was actually the market peaked in October of 2007. Um, I have to admit that uh, although I have made some good calls on the market and the economy, that was not one of them. I did not see the crisis anywhere near as severe. I knew real estate was overblown, but that, that uh, you know, I-Bank such as Bear Stearns, Lehman, and others would crash because of that, I did not expect. So, the meltdown in 2008 and, uh, of course, hitting its low early March of 2009 was something certainly that shocked me. I think it shocked around the world. As, as you said, it was actually the worst decline in stock value since the 1929 stock crash. And we saw in the span of a couple of months uh, several occasions where 
the the Dow Jones Industrial Average set new record losses for one day. I mean, 700, 800 points in one day right. that the Dow was losing. And obviously, the S&P and the NASDAQ were, were following along. Yeah. Now, of course, nothing uh, ranks the biggest one-day drop was that October 19th, 1987 yeah. uh, day. But but you, you're, you're absolutely right. Uh, when TARP was turned down, it was a 770-point loss. And again, much bigger percentage than it would be today, one right after the other. You know, look at the bottom line is that we, in in terms of severity of a recession, uh, it tied or slightly exceeded that of the early 80s, which was the worst since the Great Depression. So uh, we had an economic downturn that resulted from the crisis uh, that was that that was as severe. And, uh, you know, the, it, it it's not surprising that the stock market uh Went with it. Of course, as you also said, we've had an, a remarkable recovery, uh, both of the economy and of, of the markets uh, in the subsequent nine years. And this, this is actually, as you know, we just uh, last month passed the longest bull market uh, in history as yeah. traditionally measured. Gad, how were how you reacting to all of this, uh, uh, all of these events as they uh, played out a decade ago? So I remember, I, I'm not a finance professor, yeah. but, but I remember I attended a talk a little bit before that on how credit swaps are, are the best thing ever, uh, the best thing since sliced bread, essentially. Um, and, and I was asking myself very quickly, I mean, do we really understand the full implication of that? Now, again, I, I'm, I'm basically I'm in the same place as Jeremy. I, I did not anticipate any of that um, and, and definitely did not understand the depth of what's going to happen. But... The fact that we were using more and more complex instruments that we do n- definitely do not understand the full extent of their impact, not the first order, but definitely not the second and the third order of them, um, that was be- that, that's something that I, I saw a little bit before that. And of course, I mean, if you talk about the, the, many of the reasons for the subsequent uh, declines, I think a lot of that was because more and more people realized that what we see is just the beginning of, of, of a much bigger thing in, in a sense that w- when we see one fall of one bank or one market, I mean, I think the, the ripple effects are going to be quite significant. And, and people who are uh, starting to believe, some to, to build un- irrational beliefs on, on, on how the, what's going to be the impact, and that's, that's where you see a significant uh, swings up and down. Um, but, but I think the, the main thing was the realization that the thing came afterwards that there were more and more instruments in the market that were tying between um, home ownership to fairly complex uh, bonds to complex swaps that really tied the entire market together and, and that very few people actually understood all of that. Uh, that when, and, and then as one thing happened, the ripple effects were significant. Yeah, I'd, I'd like to follow up on that. I mean, I think one of the major causes of the crisis I've written on this was that these complex instruments, you know, were rated AAA. They should never have been rated AAA. Right. And um, that allowed the I-banks to leverage enormously on them. And, of course, it was the leverage on these uh, default swaps and on these, uh, you know, first tranche mortgages, et cetera, and so on, uh, that once the, the ripples came and people say, oh, my God, you know, they're not really triple A. Yeah. Uh, you know, it was just a, a crash waiting to happen. And, and I guess, Gad, that, that that leveraging is something that I think a lot of people from the outside still to this day are, are pro- when you talk about it and you talk about how this all played out. 
the the fact that so many elements were leveraged, a lot of people that were invested in the market still today are, are angered and irked about how a lot of this played out from an operational standpoint. Yeah, and, and I think that's the reality of, of any. When we talk about a lot about, I mean, I think if I want to bring it to these days, people talk a lot about the regulation of uh, the tech firms, Facebook and, and, and Twitter and, 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 uh, and Google. And the reality is that the technology is somewhere 10 to 15 years ahead of the regulators. Um, there are, if I talk about how Facebook does nowadays their uh, sort of algorithm, it, it's not very different in terms of the complexity of how banks leverage and created sophisticated instruments. By the way, most of them were created for to make more liquidity in the market, to create more opportunities for firms to, for more people to buy houses, for example, people that before could not buy houses. So most of these were created with good intentions and as a way to create more uh, opportunities. But since the regulators were many years behind and the people that were using them many times, some, most of them understood some of them understood them to, to the very basic level, but very few people understood them at a very high level, created this separation where it creates opportunities for people to overutilize these. And when you start to overutilize them, that's where you get into this effect where, where something happens, people know that there's something else that's going to happen afterwards, that there's going to be another subsequent negative effect, but we very, very seldom know what it is. So I, in many ways, I, I find parallels here that the regulation at the time knew that these are used, but have very few people among them that actually understood really what's the impact of, I mean, talking about correlation between markets, talking really understanding how the trenching was done, what's the implication of trenching. But all of that time was actually positive approach towards market and trying to create more and more opportunities through complex uh, products. <clears throat> yeah, and, and I think, I mean, let, let's face it, there's a failure of the supervisor, a failure of the Fed. I mean, Alan Greenspan yeah. himself. Now he wasn't. He had already left just before the crisis, but he he gave no warning. He never looked at the balance sheets of these I banks, and you know it was shocking when he came back in December in congressional testimony and said, "I never thought the I banks could put their shareholders at risk the way they did." Well, why didn't you look at those and say, "Hey, I guys, you know, do remember his famous irrational exuberance warning is for you, sir." He was he. He should have realized uh, that these I-Banks and uh, not only I-Banks, we call it City and Merrill Lynch and all these others, uh, NAIG said, you know, selling to, uh, credit to false were, were were utilizing extremely um, high leverage on risky products and, and should have sounded a warning. And, um, you know, I mean, he has obviously he deserves credit for doing some good things early on as as Fed chairman, but I think that's a signal failure. Uh, if there's someone's voice that would have been listened to, it would have been Alan Greenspan. Um, and um, I, I, I think that, unfortunately, we didn't have that voice giving us a warning. So man. what what could what could Mr. Greenspan have done from a, from an actual physical standpoint of taking the, the you know uh, obviously putting out the warnings. Yeah. But what could he have done as the 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 Fed chair to be able to affect well, that? Well, just by putting out just by putting out warnings saying, you know, I I'm I'm one I see the leverage on these firms uh you know, triple A on these tranches uh, that allowed this leveraging, he could have, you know, told the regulators, "We got to, we've got to rein this in." And if he did this back in two thousand and six, I think we had a chance to avoid the, 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 you know, the, the, the crisis 
uh, that we had. Now, again, I mean, it is true. Everyone kind of loved it. Even the government said, oh, we want low-income people. This is fine. You know, the private sector is generating these mortgages. We don't care about their income yeah. and the home ownership and all all that. Some regulator could say, yeah, it looks fine, but look at how much prices are going up way above income levels. Um, and, uh, you know, you know, it used to be an 80 percent mortgage was always safe. And that's what the you know, the rating agency said, hey, not not when prices are 50 percent too high, then 80 percent mortgages aren't safe. Yeah. And of course, as you know, in in many places in the country, you know, Phoenix and Miami, uh, Las Vegas, uh, we had home prices down 50, 60 percent. Yeah. So so 80 percent mortgages, which used to be rock solid gold, were uh, were were junk. And, and Gad, the, the, the thing that we've talked about during this special the last two days is the fact that even today, I think there's an element of this that people don't understand that how deep all of this really went. And the fact that 10 years after the fact, there are still people that are impacted by this. There are still businesses that have been impacted by this. And, and and there is still a, a long way to go for peop, some people to still get back to just basically that that flat level of where they were pre recession. Yeah, I mean that that's true. I mean we've had a remarkable recovery in terms of jobs. We have had a very poor recovery in terms of real GDP and real wages, and all that is down is productivity. And really started even yeah. before the crisis has not been good over the last ten years. Economists do not we're arguing we don't know all the reasons why yeah. uh but um uh you know it was accelerated by the crisis that that we had gad your thoughts yeah but but that's actually a, a very good point i mean we we yesterday uh, was nine eleven and and I think one cannot untie uh, the recession to nine eleven um there were already a few years of, of very poor uh, growth. Um, there was the market was hit hard on that day. Market, I mean, I'm talking about primarily consumer confidence. And in the U.S., the, the real estate market does play a huge role. It, it, it is the retirement. It is for many people. It's their ability to to keep dignity after they they retire and, and to have to, to build value. There aren't many opportunities for people of, of uh, the middle class to do it in the U.S. And, and as the market was building, there was definitely, from the from the government point of view, there was an opportunity opportunity here to see sort of a, a reassurance for sort of the, the citizen, the average citizen, the average worker that uh, things are back on track, things are building again, things are going up again. As Jeremy was saying, there is really no productivity improvement. So if there are any improvement in wage, they're going to come from they will have to come from other sources, and housing was the one source for that. Yeah, I, I, I remember. I, you, you got a good point. You know, when nine eleven hit, and then we had the recession, and that, of course, was the dot com crash. Was the same sure. time. Yeah, that shook a lot of people's faith in um, stocks, and that actually prompted a tilt towards real estate. Uh, the market uh, for a few months wobbled, but everyone then said, "Oh, I have my home. That's safe. I'm going to stay in my home. Yeah. That's that's something I can touch and feel." And actually, that that nine eleven and the recession and the dot com crash started the big housing bubble, which of course led to all these products, the over leveraging, and then the bursting that we had with with the crash of uh, and the bankruptcy of Lehman. Gabe, again? Exactly. So, so, so the government, in many ways, while on one side could play the regulator, had to play the regulator, was also playing the cheerleader here. Yeah. 
Absolutely. And, and so they had to play sort of a dual role on one side trying to cool the market, but at the same time knowing that they really, there is no substitute for cooling the market. If the market indeed cools, people's uh, entire valuation was based on, go- on the market going up and, and flipping houses and buying houses and joining yeah. sort of the home ownership. And interest rates very low internationally. That, you know, the beginning of the declining interest. And some people blame Greenspan for not raising them enough, but the, the truth of the matter was... Uh, the the long term interest rates stayed low for international reasons that were a little bit even beyond the Fed. So that Fed, the buying, I mean, it was so cheap to buy houses, you know, three four yeah. percent mortgages, and 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 then every and as they were going up, people said, ah, that's the investment, not stocks anymore. And yeah. they all and then of course that's that's the psychology that starts the bubble. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. That, that, that's a now you asked before what what. What Grisman could have could have done. I mean, you, you can see the rigor of the stress test that banks are going now through, and you compare it to what they went at the time, and then it's really uncomparable. I mean, it's. I mean, currently, stress tests are real, trying to understand whether we can withstand a, any catastrophic, but even less than catastrophic events, and can the banks still be liquid after that? None of that was done at the time rigorously. Things were done, but at a very very shallow level, and and, and that I think goes back to. Um, I mean, if you want to discuss what does that mean for our as, as people that teach, I mean, I think we we teach models and then we want our students to rely on models, but right. we want to, them to be also very critical of the same models they use. And that was the issue at the time. I think people had models, but their belief in the model was absolutely, a, I mean, they were overconfident on their model to predict things. And what we learned very quickly that that can have significant impact beyond what just that specific small Entity that they were managing. What was that like for you as a as a professor in terms of the teaching and the and and the contact with the students and obviously you say teaching one thing but but seeing another thing happen. Right, and then, so that really went back. I mean, many of us went back to our uh, drawing board, if, if you will. I mean, going back and then saying because the students came to us and said, "Is everything you taught us wrong?" I mean, is, is it the case that the models that that you you build are are, are can we continue and trust them? What went wrong? If the model was wrong, if the parameters were wrong, what was wrong? And then so for many of us, that was in one way, going back and, and trying to, 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 to basically, we talk a lot about critical thinking, but I mean, critical thinking when in a situation like that, I think that becomes real to understand that you have to reevaluate your model. The, the statement that you'll hear a lot is all models are wrong, some are useful, but you have to be critical of, of what you're doing. The second thing was really going back to um, I mean, I think you mentioned that you discussed in the, a few days ago the, the notion of ethics and, and yes. direction. And, and so that, I think, got reinforced at the time, really trying to understand the role of leadership as trying to balance two things. On, on one side, sense of action. But the second one is sense of direction. And how do you go and, and, and really ask yourself, it's true that I'm just optimizing now a small instrument and I'm, so I'm sitting in front of my simulation and my Excel code. But what are the implications of what I'm doing here? What, what are the people that might be impacted by that? What, 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 I mean, is it just like one more line in a balance sheet, or, or mm-hmm. is it more significant impact here? So it created opportunities for us to rethink, but it was definitely the first few days where, where every day was a new organization a, going down, another a crash in the market, another government action that was clear, that was done in... in either haphazard or without clear clarity on direction, I think create opportunities, but also created many questions among our, our students and us. Yeah, and I, let, let me address a, a number of things. Um, first of all, economists have never been good 
at predicting recessions ever. Um, uh, they come out of blue. They come from shocks that we don't see and could be the oil shock and uh, or 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 nine eleven and the uh, dot com crash here here it was another it's very uh, and actually I felt reinforced with the models I never thought we could really predict the question is could we ameliorate um, once we did now you know the, the truth of the matter is you know Ben Bernanke as chairman used his research I mean Milton Friedman's teaching stabilize the banking sector lend as much as you can uh-huh. stabilize money and as a result in not it wasn't pretty but c- compared to the great depression of the 30s uh, this was a picnic um I mean unemployment you know went to 10 and went to 25 to 30 GDP fell 30% back then here it fell 8 um uh you know no deposits were lost all in deposits were were clear um uh sure there were stock market losses but very little beyond that so in a way you know a lot of what we taught if we didn't overpromise yeah. <laughs> that oh god we we can control the economy no more recessions blah 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 which some people thought we had enough tools to do but if we didn't overpromise I think, uh, in a way, uh, the, the frameworks we've been talking about, well, how do you react to shocks? We should have perhaps, as I said, Greenspan warned and, and stopped the leverage. All right, we failed to do that. But once that shock took place, what the Federal Reserve did was was pretty much the, the classic monetary policy, you know, which Milton Friedman and others said, this is what you failed to do in the 30s. Yeah. And he went into that mode. So in many cases... Uh, you know, I, I felt that 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 what we teach does have value uh, if we don't overpromise what we teach. So how how do you grade out? You mentioned Ben Bernanke. How do you grade out the work that that he did during that period of time? I I, I grade him. I grade him very much. You know, he was under a lot of pressure. I mean, after they bailed out Bear Stearns in March of, of uh, two thousand and eight. There was a tremendous political pushback yeah. from the president and everyone else. With no more bailouts, no more bailouts, and basically, you know, told Paulson no more bailouts. Tell, t- prepare the market. You know, they they said Lehman was the next one to go. Tell Lehman, tell Dick Fold, sell it. He tried to sell it, yeah. and no one would buy because he was so over leveraged and overpriced real estate. Yeah. And and yet, and Ben Bernanke was very reluctant, but he said, "Okay, I see the political pressures. Let's see what happens." And then, of course, the day. Uh, that Lehman went under, the financial markets around the world froze. Yeah. I mean, it was just like, well, what's safe? Nothing but U.S. Treasuries. No bank is safe, nothing. And Ben Bernanke then said, okay, I, I'm just going to have to lend, lend it to AIG. And he said, we just have to stop it. I mean, I'll take the political fallout, which was extreme. Um, yeah. But I just learned from what I've studied all my life that – I'll take the heat and I'll stop it and I'll make sure that everything else gets stabilized. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and that I think I give him you know an A plus for that. He was never a forecaster. Remember, sure. Yeah. Uh, he was never a forecaster. Gab, what was your reaction to Ben Bernanke and his work during this time? Uh, I'm I'm definitely with Jeremy on that. Uh, but I think to me at least the interesting thing a little bit there is an int- there is an interesting uh, op-ed a few days ago from Andrew Ross Sorkin on the implications for today politics of yeah. the actions of that, that day. Uh, and, and so you can almost like see two divergent opinions uh, or, or two divergent uh, paths, if you will, 
the, the U.S. way and, and, and the British way. Uh, in, in the U.S., very significant uh, action, primarily about trying to resurrect the market, bring the market back again to where it was. Um, and, and in fact, as, as we said, the, the, uh, the show is saying, I mean, the market is, is doing tremendously well. Uh, but that only goes to a, to a small, relatively small fraction of uh, the economy. You have the UK one where actually many of the actions that people promote now saying that should have gone for the executive of the bank, should have gone for a much more um, so forceful uh, regulatory effect. And, and, but at the same time, you see that the, the British market is, is uh, not doing well. The economy is not doing well. Yeah, let um, me uh, – this is really important, and you're bringing up something. It's – it was born here, the crisis, yeah. but we have recovered both in GDP and jobs and the stock market better than any other in the world. Uh, emerging market and and Europe have lagged behind, even though it was born here. So in many ways, we had better policy subsequent than they had subsequent. Yep. Gad? Yeah, no, but, but that, that's to, to, to the point, however, is that while this is true, and so if you use the market as the main signal, that is definitely true. Um, if you look at housing market, the housing market is plateaued, but it's back again for many, most people where it was before, um, at least those who, who managed to uh, maintain their house. Um, but a lot of what you see, the political backlash that you see recently is driven by that, is driven by the fact that there is a feeling of separation between those who managed to escape uh, unscathed and those who actually continue to to this day to suffer the consequences. There is growth in, in jobs, and, and, and again, quite significant and quite remarkable, but wages have not recovered at all for most people. Um, and, and so, I mean, I, th- I think if you can see, if, I'm not sure that I, I know the right way of doing that because these are the two extremes, and, and, and we know that they succeeded only to an extent, but the reality is that I think a lot of criticism comes to that comes back to that, uh, of the political situation. Well, the the point of Andrew Ross Sarkin was that, you know, Britain uh, clamped down much harder, punished the executives, did a lot more than what we did, and they yeah. had the same backlash with Brexit as we right. did in, if we interpret the Trump election in the same way. So th- then, Jeremy, you made the call a couple of years ago on 25,000 on the Dow. <laughs> where are you now? Where Where are you looking right now? Because as we're doing this interview, we're at about 26.1. Right. I said the NAS was over uh, 8,000 uh, recently. Yeah. I, I, I mean, how long will this will this market continue to run? I, I mean, I, I, you know, I don't think it's overpriced, but I, I don't think... I don't see big gains over the next year or so. Maybe five, six, seven percent. Okay. Right. Uh, I do think if Trump, the the trade problem, if we do get an agreement with China, we'll see a ten percent jump in the market. But then all the news is all the good news is in it, and it'll be, you know, really tough to make progress but, after but, that. But Gad, also uh, the, the the regulation and the policy as we move forward becomes, a, a, I think, an even more critical peace as we continue on because we we, it, we know we're going to see a recession at some point we we want to try and mitigate it as much as possible i think we're in the same issue the market now is driven to a large extent by the tech firms all of us ride on amazon facebook google and apple do we want to really to regulate these we're going to go into to the same place where a lot of the regulation now focuses on these four organizations but these are the ones that are driving the market I, I, I see eerily, these are eerily similar to where we were in 2006, 2007, uh, 
pre-recession. I think the, the market is growing, is appreciating, but primarily because the U.S. market is much more flexible and doesn't really put all the eggs in one basket in terms of industry and tech and, and software versus more traditional markets. But uh, I do think that, regulate, that unless we start regulating this in advance, we're going to be again in a situation where the market drop is going to be much more significant than what we anticipate. Gad, thanks very much for your time today. Greatly appreciate you joining us on the show. Thanks, thanks for having me. Thank you, Jeremy. Great seeing you again. Happy to be here. When the Great Recession hit, some people pointed a finger at business schools, asking why the MBAs that caused the economic turmoil weren't taught responsibility and accountability. Ethics is something that business schools have been teaching for decades. But did the financial crisis change the way academic institutions like right here, the Wharton School, emphasize corporate responsibility and ethics. Eric Ortz is a professor of legal studies and business ethics here at the Wharton School. He's also director of the Initiative for Global Environmental Leadership. He joins us here in studio. Stephen Arbogast is a professor of practice of finance and director of the Energy Center at the Keenan Flagler Business School at the University of North Carolina. And Anita Kava is a professor in the Business Law Department at the University of Miami Business School, and she's also co-director of the University of Miami Ethics Program. Eric, great seeing you as always. Thanks Good for to be here, Dan. Stephen, Anita, thank you very much for your, for your time today. All the best. Happy to be thank here. You. Thank you. So uh, I'll take us back, Eric, from your perspective of of that period of time. Has the teaching, has the mindset around teaching and ethics changed any here at the Wharton School? Yes, I, th- I think it has uh, to some extent. So uh, I think if you go back, um, uh, if you go back, um, I don't know, about 20 years or so, you didn't really have any uh, ethics that was being uh, that was being being taught for the most part. So you had uh, the beginning of some. Uh, some people were looking at that kind of question, and you had the idea of corporate social responsibility in a, in a, in that sort of thing. And it's uh, yeah, it's it, it's uh, it's it. But I think in uh, in more more recent more recent times, you've had uh, a resurgence of an interest in that. So um, I would say that there's a there's a change. Now that had been going on before the financial crisis, and so you had other kinds of. Uh, Big hits to the market, or, or you had you had waves of fraud, et cetera, that would periodically lead to calls for business, business schools to do something about it. Now, I think there's a question in my mind, at least, about whether that's really appropriate or correct. Uh, as I teach the I teach the basic course in the MBA curriculum, and I've taught, uh, and we have required courses in the undergraduate per- curriculum as well. And uh, my general sense is that there's been some changes that we can talk about, but overall, I'm not sure it's really something that you would want that you uh, would would pin particularly on business schools as to whether yeah. they're teaching this in the curriculum or not. There's a more broad, there's a broader problem I think that that business schools should think about, and that is what is it that we're really doing when we're teaching people to be good citizens within businesses? Sure. Mm-hmm. And I think that there's a general sense uh, that has uh, come up that. You basically only maximize profits within the limits of the law. That's all it's about, and you really are not thinking about anything else. And that's that's actually taught as an axiom in some economics-oriented classes in business schools. And so I think that you can say 
there's a general diagnosis of what are you covering in in business schools? What is the, what is the point? Right. What is the fundamental point right. of business school? And in that respect, I think that there's a useful conversation to be had. I think there are changes on how we teach responsibility in business, law and ethics in business, et cetera. Yeah. Yeah. But I think the question actually goes relatively deeper to what are business schools doing with respect to the culture of how we're what are we really about? What is a business and what are we teaching students to be be doing? But the, having said that, just one other thing to say there. It's not – I think it's a little bit too much to say it's all the business school's fault because we are responding to markets just like other people are doing. Yeah, yeah. And so we are looking to the recruiters who are, who are the – what are recruiters looking for? What are the banks looking for? What are – uh, what are consulting firms looking for? So this is a broader cultural issue that we really have to all discuss, not only sort of try to pin the pin, pin the blame on the business yeah. schools. It's a broader political, social, ideological question here. Anita, your thoughts? It's a very interesting answer that you just gave, Eric. And my take is a little uh, different and also agree very much. So here at the University of Miami, where I've been for 35 years, I arrived to teach the required class in uh, legal and ethical implications of executive decision-making that had been in place before I got here. So it was in place in 77. And this was a required class across the MBA. Uh, the undergraduate course, it's a required course for all undergraduates, our introduction to business law, had a module around ethics. But I would say it wasn't particularly strong or particularly reinforced. Over the period of time, I would say that our energies have definitely shifted, and it may be a result of simply um, a coalescing of passionate people here and the fortunate to have some very generous donors um, who have made it possible to create uh, a suite of opportunities, including uh, co-curricular activities for students, both within the business school and across the university, uh, research opportunities for students and faculty, and ethics and society, ethics and community, um, campus-wide conversations around ethics facilitated by an ethics and film series, um, MBA consultants for nonprofits where we were able to generate support and send students into the nonprofit areas here in town and kind of be embed them in the community with an eye to their becoming better citizens, more aware of the needs of the community. Um, and 10 years ago here at the University of Miami School of Business, we, we changed our mission statement to include uh, creating principled leaders as part of the uh, point at the school, and the new dean that came in just last year, uh, John Quelch, uh, refined that to uh, principled leaders with gl global depth. And uh, with that, we've seen, I think, even more energy in that direction. Um, we had, just last year, we had our first postdoc in ethics, a, a philosopher type with some law background who was able to develop case studies and do some training the trainers mm -hmm. on campus. And... Um, and also a, a, a strong interest now in a, in a more global notion of sustainability. But I agree with Eric that you can't pin this on business schools. And that the question that we should all be asking is, you know, what's your reputation worth? How much is enough? And how are you going to get there from here? Which is the, uh, the way I present my my uh, themes to my students. Uh, I teach ethics undergrads, uh, MBAs, and execs. Stephen, how about you there at, at North Carolina? Yeah, I appreciate uh, the opportunity and the, and the conversation. Uh, I agree with the sentiment uh, that uh, you know 
pinning the, the responsibility uh, for the ethical failures in, say, banking on the business schools is, is certainly an exaggerated uh, claim. Um, I would say that, that at the University of North Carolina, we, uh, we came to the conclusion that um, the approaches to teaching ethics at business schools uh, needed further development. Um, historically, there's been a lot of focus on teaching uh, students how to think about ethics from a legal or a, almost a philosophical perspective. And we came to some very different conclusions. Uh, the first was that um, the biggest problem was that uh, young people were being placed inside business cultures um, that confronted them early in their careers with very, very difficult career choices where they were often given a, a, a situation in which they had to go along with something that was very compromising or see their career uh, threatened in a fundamental way. Uh, one of the principles that we came to was that the young people were in some sense the most vulnerable. And if you look at, uh, for example, uh, situations in the financial crisis, you see senior executives not being prosecuted. Yeah, yeah. And the people uh, really going to the wall uh, were mid-career or young people. Uh, Fabrice Torre, the, you know, the sort of um, case manager of the abacus deal at Goldman Sachs, you know, he gets barred from the securities industry and you know, gets fined almost a million bucks. And the people on the Goldman Sachs uh, committee that reviewed that deal, you know, nobody uh, prosecuted them at all. So we began to talk to our students about the fact that they were uh, going to be, uh, you know, uh, in effect challenged early in their career, and they needed to think in a more practical way about um, ethics uh, in, in order to um, progress. Training, uh, you know, potential CEOs on values is, 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 is good, but uh, in some sense they have to survive the, 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 the road up the corporate ladder uh, to be able to to act on on, on those values later in, in, in their career. And, and Stephen, I, I think part of, of how you see that play out uh, could be also be in the example of something like Wells Fargo. Uh, you know, you see uh, some of the issues that have happened to that company in the in the last few years, and you wonder, you know, where is that pressure? Where uh, is that conversation about ethics with some of these ideas of bringing a lot of these products forward? Well, exactly right. That, that's an example of the kind of career pressures that, that, that people are, are placed under. And, you know, that brings up the whole question of um, what is the financial control culture and the compliance culture in different organizations? So one of the things we talk to our students about a lot is when they go through the recruiting process, uh, to actually pay attention to how the recruiters talk about um, financial control and compliance uh, in their organizations. Uh, you, you, if you've been out in the corporate world, you can usually tell the difference uh, between uh, corporations or firms that take you know, financial control seriously. Um, an interesting example is whether how they regard the audit function. Is the audit function truly independent? Do they have an opportunity to go where they need to go? When you report something to audit, is it kept confidential? These are interesting, you know, litmus tests of whether, you know, the control organization 
and the culture in an organization will support people on ethics, or will they hang them out to dry because management wants to, you know, do something and doesn't want to let ethics to get or the law to get in the in in the way? This is a different kind of conversation that that we have with with, with students here at, at, at Keenan Flagler, and interestingly enough, it's it's actually um, you know attention perks up. I, I think uh, in, in you know some students consider compulsory ethics courses at business you know, kind of an imposition. Um, but I, I, I think to some extent that's a function of the fact that they, they wonder how are they going to be able to put this in practice when they get in their career. They know the risks that are sort of out there. Right. And so talking to them more, more uh, straightforwardly uh, about these less than pleasant realities and how to navigate around them, um, you know, it actually sparks their attention in, in class. Eric? Yeah, I'd like to pick up on a few of those points, and uh, I'm, bro- I'm broadly in agreement what, with what the uh, what 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 Stephen has just said. I hope he's staying out of the way of the hurricane, by the way, uh, down in North Carolina. <laughs> We're doing uh, our best to steer it south. Okay, good. Our people, friends in Char- in Charleston, are not 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 liking that. Well, uh, well, good luck with it. Um, but I just want to pick up on a few things. I think uh, I would agree the way I we have uh, we have different approaches at, at Wharton, and depending who's teaching the course, and so you're always going to have different uh, di- different uh, different approaches. My own approach is uh, is to look at it, business responsibility on two different levels. One is the ethics side, and and I think that I would agree that I try, and I think this is probably a general trend that we're moving away a little bit from a strictly philosophical kind of approach to ethics, although I would say Wharton remains very strong in that field, and we have a lot of people doing research uh, from that kind of grounding, and, and I think I agree with the general view that ethics, by definition, is sort of a philosophical issue. But to, tr- to teach that to business students, I think my own approach, at least, is to encourage them to get in touch with what is their own, what are their values, and where, where and for MBAs, they've, of course, been out in the real world for a while, they have they they have a lot of business experience, and so um, one of the things that you, you you I think it is available when you're in a teaching environment like we have uh, is that MBAs have a lot of experience of their own, and then they are subject, as Stephen was was saying, to very difficult situational pressures. Yeah. So it's not that people are immoral or amoral going into a situation necessarily. Maybe there's some few. But that the situations uh, put them at risk, and so the question is: If you, can you reflect and maybe help students to realize that you can be in these situations? There can be very high pressure put on you when you're in a situation and you're being told to do something, and it's authoritarian. It's a, yeah. it's a hierarchical <laughs> situation where your salary depends on this, your family yep. may depend on you, etc. You, it, it, I think it makes sense to try to th- step back be able to think about that, the fact that you're going to be in those kinds of situations, and then what to do about it. So that can sometimes be a legal response, a protective response, and that's another goal. Another goal, at least how how I think we mostly teach this at Wharton, is prophylactic, which is the legal side. How do you stay out of trouble? We want we want our students to not be on the front page of any sure. papers yeah. and to stay out. You know, these, to keep their keep their hands clean. It's not always that easy in these situations the, to do that. Then, Anita, how do you think it, th- this can be addressed? Because I mean, obviously, we've seen even in the last few years, and I mentioned Wells Fargo for an example. We're ten years out from the recession, and we still see elements like this happening within the banking industry and even in an industry where we've seen uh, a, very much a heightened level of regulation. It ends up 
having the pressure, but it ends up being a, in some respects, a choice that that person has to make. So I'm smiling with recognition and agreement with both of my colleagues on this call. It's so interesting. First of all, um, I do believe that we pitch uh, ethics as critical thinking skills, so making a good decision that will withstand public scrutiny. Um, I do try to avoid the word ethics, but rather engage them with critical thinking, good decision-making, reputation management. And the notion of how to report, recognize, and report harm. So we have a big compliance uh, initiative going on in the business school here. Um, I run a a no-credit, no-cost, four-day compliance boot camp twice a year and have embedded compliance into the classes in a way that I did not five years ago to exactly highlight to them the way in which they can begin to assess the compliant culture of where they're interviewing. Um, I also really spend time trying to work with them about how mechanisms for reporting wrongdoing, whistleblowing, and um, encouraging them to think about the way one could report wrongdoing in their own experience here now as undergraduates where they're not yet have much experience in the workplace, so that would be reporting cheating. And I did a whole hour yesterday on Enron, reporting wrongdoing, didn't happen, how would you report wrongdoing, avoid harm? And they were very engaged and very interested in thinking about those kinds of things. And I I think there is a way, a pressure point at the more undergraduate level. The MBAs, I think, come to this table with the experience that um, was just mentioned. And asking them to reflect is an excellent strategy. Absolutely. Um, And the question is, Wells Fargo is the gift that keeps on giving. I mean, I ask my students to not only watch Elizabeth Warren scolding uh, John Stumpf, but I also ask them to realize that people all down the food chain were making decisions that were completely based on making a couple of more bucks and really harming other people. And I think the, the real push in our profession at this point needs to be thinking about about personal character and who are you, personal values, and I'm doing a whole class on that tomorrow uh, with really asking them to articulate that and carry that forward in their other business classes. Could I uh, build on on what was just said, uh, if I could? One of the things that uh, we we, um, uh, sort of illuminate for, for our students is how the legal landscape has changed uh, to support um, um, the reporting of wrongdoing. So uh, this really began in the wake of Enron with Sarbanes-Oxley and its whistleblower protections, uh, but they were quite imperfect, and uh, the, the, the Bush administration, Labor Department, did a terrific job of undermining you know, what Sarbanes-Oxley's uh, protections were supposed to accomplish. But subsequent to that, Dodd-Frank really, uh, you know, improved the whistleblower protections uh, and instituted a bounty program for uh, for reporting through the SEC. Uh, in addition, uh, some very uh, successful cases have been brought uh, under uh, the the False Claims Act, which was otherwise known as the Lincoln Law. Is a very uh, famous case of Sherry Hunt uh, t- taking a city mortgage uh, to uh, to task uh, in 2011, 2012, three years, four years after the financial crisis, this this, this happened. 
So um, there's actually been the growth of almost a cottage industry in legal firms that will support, um, you know, uh, principled whistleblowers. Uh, so they don't have to do it as lone wolves anymore. Uh, they're actually uh, uh, pretty uh, good opportunities to engage uh, legal help. Right. If you have a, 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 a compelling uh, a case, there are multiple places where you can uh, report this. Right. There's a National Whistleblower Center in Washington. So the, the, the landscape for, um, for actually taking action uh, and not having to throw your career completely out the window has improved a lot in the last uh, 10 years. And this is this is something that is useful to bring the students' attention. Eric, your thoughts? Yeah, just to uh, kind of pull it together, I, think, I fully agree with the importance of uh, the legal landscape. And so I think that's something that we at Wharton b- believe very strongly, that the ethics and law side go together. One of the really large uh, problems right now, I think, is that we're going to we see a we see a reaction as if there's a reaction against any kind of regulation, and that seems to be gathering strength. And I think that's a dangerous sign for the future. One change I just want to highlight, since we're at the end here, is uh, that we've added. Uh, a, I think we've had on our show yesterday uh, Peter Conti Brown and David yep. Zaring in my department. So we we really think that financial regulation and the and the and the and thinking seriously about that is a big part of this uh, this question. We're adding another colleague in that same field at the junior level in, in January. And that is also part of this larger picture. We have to educate people to be uh, – our students to be able to navigate the problems uh, from an ethical point of view. And uh-huh. all, but they also, I think, need uh, – w- would be helped by a larger perspective to look at, okay, how do we really get a handle on this problem that's not – that's not going to. That's going to probably come back. I think sure. as you opened up uh, this series uh, discussing, and not only talk about how they orient themselves ethically to these problems, but also how do we think a little more systemically about how do we how do we get a how do we get change so that we can avoid these kind of really bad uh, fi- financial crises in the future. Thank you all for your time today. Um, Have it, to end it there. Thank you, oh, Stephen. Okay. <laughs> Running at right right at the top of the hour, unfortunately. Okay. Thank you, Stephen. Thank you, you Anita, for your time today. Greatly appreciate your insight. All righty. Thank, Thank you, you both. Eric, great talking to you. Thank you very much. Thanks, Dan. Thank you. That will take care of our uh, two-day special, Looking Back at the Great Recession. Many thanks for everybody listening in. Everybody enjoy the rest of your day, and we'll talk to you tomorrow. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.